That was fantastic, worship team. You guys were in the groove this morning. Thank you, Jody and team. And I'm pretty sure they have many saxophones in heaven. So that was awesome, Josh. Thank you uh, so much. Want to be uh, mindful of the time, uh, in particular this morning. Does anyone have the time to, uh, what's, what time you have the time, anyone? 10.40. 10.40? That doesn't sound right. Did you guys adjust for the time change? No, 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 no. No, I'm not talking about last week's time change. I'm talking about the time change that was nearly 2,000 years ago. Did you adjust for that time change? So, so what time is it? I don't think you guys know what time it is. That's bad. That's not a good thing. In fact, I I think the Lord is looking for people, disciples. He's looking for congregations who know what time it is. We're going to have to remedy that this morning, I think. Shall we do that? All right, I was thinking about a conversation I had several years ago, maybe 20 years ago. I was asked by a friend to, to stand up to be a groomsman for him, and uh, they had told me that the friend of the, the bride, she was not a Christian, and in fact, her life gave the impression that she was very far from the things of God and she was going to be the one that I was walking down the aisle with and hanging out during the ceremony and all that. So they said, God bless you, Eric, in your conversation, go. <laughs> said, all right, let's, let's give it a shot. And so, uh, you know, all of that went fine, the rehearsal and the dinner and the, and the wedding, and, and uh, we were sitting at the bridal table, you know, and that's always a little bit uncomfortable when you're like having to, you, you get through the pleasantries like the weather and sports and stuff like that, and then, you know, how nice the ceremony was, and then you really don't know where to go from there exactly. So I had dropped a few hints that I was a, a person of faith. And so as uh, we were wrestling for conversation, she said, oh, you know, as if she had thought of one point of connection, she said, I'm a pretty avid reader. I I have been for a long time. And I was reading this series. I don't know if you've ever heard about it. It's called Left Behind by Tim LaHaye. And I didn't want to tell her that I had tried several times to read it because that's all anyone could talk about for a while, but I was bored, and so I just could not get through it. So who would have known they were going to write 16 Left Behind books? Like, that's a lot. No wonder I was bored with the pace. But I didn't want to go into that with her. I said, you know, I haven't read them, but yeah, I'm aware of that. And she said, you know... I'm pretty sure, I I think that's how everything is going to go down. And I said, absolutely not. I have some key biblical differences with Tim LaHaye. And we didn't say a word for the rest of the... (laughs) No, of course I didn't say that. 
right? Uh, you know, I don't always get this, but on occasion I can sense that, that God is doing something in the person's life and saw that, that the, the Spirit of God was working within her. That even though she was not in the light, she was not a Christian, she had not entered the kingdom of God, that, that he was wooing her to a certain degree. And, and he was using this end times, this idea of where is it all going? What's happening in the world? How, is there someone over this history or is it just madness? All these questions of end times, he was using in this non-Christian's life to bring her and to draw her. So I, I, I did my best to, to maybe do a few links in the chain between her understanding of the end and how God wanted that to affect her daily life. Her, her, her ideas of the future impact her present. As I've reflected over that conversation, I've realized that there is power in talking about end times. Not just power with non-Christians that hopefully that sparks some interest, but also it should have power for many of us who are in the light, who, who have been transformed. If you are a Christian, then there's a, a good chance that you have been affected by the first coming of Christ, that you have, have recognized Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you've asked him into your life. And yet he's not wanting to leave us there, is he? He's also wanting to use, just as he used his first coming, he wants to use in our lives the idea of his second coming, cross and judgment, right? Ascension and resurrection, our resurrection. He's wanting to use that message in our lives to bring transformation from what we believe and understand about the future into our present today. He wants this not just to be an intellectual exercise, but to transform our lives through our understanding. Another example of that is my brother who was a believer and he was there in Atlanta. He was in a Bible study. This was a number of years ago and he said, Eric, do you, uh, do you want your congregation to tithe 10%? Yeah, that, that would be really great. Uh, do that, yeah. He's like, here's what you need to do. Preach through the book of Revelation. He had never, never tithed 10% in his life until he got into a, a Bible study on Revelation. And I just imagine my, my brother not even waiting till the study was over, like grabbing his checkbook because he, he wanted to be ready. Yeah. So next week, we're starting a series on the book of Revelation. No, deacons, calm down, Keith. We're just joking around. Right? So, but it, it's meant to have an impact on how we live today. And I really do believe that was part of Paul's motivation 
of his desire. Yes, he was answering, as we saw last week, he was answering some particular questions that um, those in the, the church of Thessalonica, they were wondering, especially about those who had uh, fallen asleep or had passed away, who had died, and they were concerned, does that mean they're, they're out in terms of second coming? And he was saying, no, we looked at that at, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in what Paul is saying to them in chapter 5. So he's, again, giving, he's giving assurance that those who have died, those who have gone before us, they will precede us. They will go before us. They will be caught up. They'll come with Christ, be caught up before us, then we will. And then he goes on, remember there's no uh, chapter breaks in the original Greek or text, so it's still part of the discussion that's happening. Chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, he says, now brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Just a few verses ago, he, he mentioned the Lord's teaching. He, Paul gets this idea, uh, this metaphor from Jesus himself. Verse 3, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come. Those are the people that are not in the know. There's no awareness Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. All right. Apostle Paul, he uses... Uh, a lot of metaphors and motifs to really string together and help us grow in our understanding of the coming of Christ. One metaphor or motif he uses is the idea of sleep. The idea of we can be asleep. He, he uses that in a variety of ways, actually, in different places in his letters. Last week, he used the idea of being asleep in a physical sense. He was talking about people who passed away. 
But in chapter 5, he shifts that, and it's helpful if we notice the shift. Now he's not talking about physical sleep or death. He's talking about spiritual and in fact, he does, he's saying, I would argue, let me, let me put it this way, that we can be asleep spiritually in the dark, or we can be asleep spiritually in the light. That makes sense? Let me unpack that just a, a little bit more. Like he says in Romans 13.11, clearly he is speaking to Christians. He says, and do this, understanding the present time. What time is it? Yeah, that's not good enough. We'll have to come back to that. We'll get there, all right? Understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Is he speaking to Christian or non-Christian? Christian and I guess you could say both, but especially uh, Christians. He's saying, wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believe. Look at your neighbor and say, wake up. Wake up! Good job. Many years ago, my uh, my mom she had a favorite preacher. He he uh, is gone to to be with the Lord, Bob Mumford. He was known pretty well, but this was before the times of of YouTube and and all the stuff. So she had what's called cassette tapes. I almost brought one as an illustration, especially for the younger, but I couldn't find one. So, so yeah, and so she had a little tape, Bob Mumford and Ministries and so forth, and so every once in a while, especially when I'd come home for college, she'd say, Eric, listen to this tape, you know, so I'd listen to it. There's one, I, I remember a couple of things from what he taught, really enjoyed him, but there was one that was titled this, Asleep in the Light. Was he talking to Christians or non-Christians? He was talking to Christians. Non-Christians are asleep in darkness. But there's a way. This is why Paul says again and again, wake up. Wake up. You are not living in such a way that you are awake to God. Awake to what he has revealed. Awake to what he has done and doing and promised will do. We are closer to our salvation, or another way of saying that is the, the second coming, or he's, when he says the day of the Lord, that, that's a big concept, but here in 1 Thessalonians 5, he's talking about when Christ returns, he says we are closer now than we've ever been, and you need to wake on up. And I think I was intrigued by that tape, because it begs the question, Am I sleepwalking as a Christian? Have I said I'm a Christian and believe, but am I really awake to what God is doing within me 
to what God is doing around me and my kids, and my wife. Of course, I wasn't asking that in college, but now I apply that. Am I, am I awake to these things? Let me ask you this. Are you sleepwalking right now? Is he saying to you, it's, it's time to wake up again? Are you awake to the issues of the cross, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness that is flowing into your life and available to you. But are you also awake to his second coming, to, to judgment and accountability and reward? Are you awake to both? Now, another interesting metaphor that he uses, that he gets, he told us, he gets from Jesus regarding the second coming. He's trying to inform us as this metaphor of a thief in the night, that we should use that lens, that metaphor. Why does Jesus use the thief in the night metaphor for us? Why does Paul think it's so important to pick that metaphor up? I think there's a couple of reasons. The, the idea that it is unexpected, that we will not know, that we need to be made aware. And then second is potentially a thief in the night is not a good thing, right? Who wants a thief in the night to come? If you're not ready, if you don't have that security system, if you're not ready, it's going to go bad. And you don't want it to go bad. I was thinking of the idea of there's, because of this meta metaphor, thief in the night, there's some things that we don't want to do in terms of the second coming, and there's some things we do want to do. One thing that we don't want to do is we don't want to guess at the particular date of his return. Has the church learned that yet? I don't think it has, so it's worth repeating this. Jesus himself said, said this about the second coming. He said, but about the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. That is an amazing scripture. How you parse that out with the Trinity and Jesus not knowing something that the Father does, I don't have answers to that, right? But what he is saying that even the angels don't know, even, the, even I don't know, so stop guessing. I was thinking in my lifetime, my first experience was, was this, was 1988, and some of you recall, if you're old enough, there was this book and a following, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Was Coming in 1988. <laughs> some of you recognize that? I was wondering, how did that go at midnight going to 1988? Were they just like... 
think that's a picture of what, what Jesus was wanting in terms of thief of the night. He did later, you know, uh, after nothing was happening, he did write, oh, I miscalculated, so it's actually 1989. <laughs> he had less of a following for 1989. What about those other 87 reasons? But I digress. So, and then the turn of the century, right? Year 2000, remember? Did you hear the stories of people selling all their stuff and going to Jerusalem and getting ready and... I, I don't know. I thought we had the, right? And then 12 ye- years later, that was, right, 88 to 2000, 12 years, and then 2012 was the Mayan calendar. I, I paid less attention to that one. I didn't quite, but something about the Mayans, their calendar only went to 2012. Did any, any of you get into that? But I think we're starting to, to learn, Right? Jesus does not want that. He wants us to be engaged in the second coming. He doesn't want us to guess. I do have one prediction in terms of dates. If you've heard me preach on this, it's the same prediction I've had, and I hold to it. All right, you ready? Yeah. It's a real prediction. I'm predicting that he will not come on a date that is guessed by anyone on earth. I'm holding to that. I'm holding to that. In fact, uh, another congregational member was saying to me last Sunday, uh, Bob, that he has a similar guess, which I like. He predicts that if he's planning on coming on a date that someone predicts, he'll change it. (laughs) I think those two go nice together, don't they? So I'm holding to that. In terms of predictions, let's stay there. All right. So that's one is we don't guess at the date and the return. Second thing that we don't do is we don't, if Jesus doesn't know, if there's some details that even the angels don't know, then we don't aggressively argue. We don't divide. We don't walk away. Are you post-mill or pre-mill or ah-mill? Are you pre-trib? Are you mid-trib? Are you post-trib? Mikey, what is it? Out, out, out. Right, I, I, you know, I've had friends, one pastor who left his denomination because they were so focused on a particular articulation of end times. And it wasn't just that he didn't agree with them is that they left no room for disagreement for him relationally. That's not how it should go. In uh, InterVarsity, some of my spiritual roots, they were, um, there's a story of the early days of InterVarsity, and they were, this was a movement, it was just happening, it was a ministry on college campuses, and there's a retreat center that an early leader felt called, and he had this property, and this, he had this major donor that was ready to give a lot, like in the area of millions, but the donor had one request, that within the charter of InterVarsity, that they would articulate a particular end time scenario. I think that's a no-go. I don't think that is of Christ. The early leader of InterVarsity walked away 
as I think he should have. There's things, there's things that I don't mind walking away over. There's orthodox things. There's the deity of Christ, the Trinity. There, there's a number of things that in the history of the church, it is worth walking away. End times is not one of them. Amen? Amen. Okay. So those are uh, one more thing that we should not do. We should not live our lives like we've got all the time in the world. We should not live our lives in such a way that does not reflect that Jesus could, he could come back before this worship service is done. Okay, I'll keep going. All right. That, that we want to live our lives in this idea. I, I, I communicate this in some different contexts. I call it playing the long game. Now, uh, and oftentimes in circumstances I use this where, where when people are wrestling through something like a uh, divorce oftentimes and there's young children and oftentimes uh, the, the struggle and the bitterness and pain so easily unfolds into the little children. And uh, when I was going through my divorce, between me and the Lord, I felt like the Lord said, I want you to live and speak and relate to your children as in someday they will be adults. Someday they will ask the question, why'd you do that? Why'd you say that? Why'd you make that decision? And I wanted so desperately to have a clear and clean conscience that any decision they asked of me, I would be able to say, this is why I prayed about it. I asked the Lord, and this was the direction. Happy to say that it's happening today. They, they see that. Now, apply that spiritually. One of the profound things in Scripture is that we will give an account of our words, our decisions, and our actions with the Lord that we will go over our lives with him. If we are Christians, we will go over our, our lives not in such a way of whether you're in or whether you're out, right? right? Because we're only in, not because of what we've done, but by the grace of God, amen? However, what we do matters, and Jesus says, you're going to have to give an account of every word spoken. And in fact, Paul in another letter, 1 Corinthians 3, says, for some of us, when our lives, our work are tested with fire, it's going to burn up. You'll get in, but it's like escaping through flames. Jack, be nimble. Jack, be quick. Jack, jump over the candlestick. So we want to play the long game. We want to live today 
for that day when we stand before our Lord and Savior. And with the mistakes I've made, I want Jesus to come in and say, yeah, Father, we've talked about that. He's received forgiveness and grace. Remember on such and such a date, Eric confessed that. And it's gone. And then on another thing, yeah, that was, remember that? That was when we, we delighted in, in what you did in that instance. Well done, good and faithful servant. I want to live my life not only in the idea of the cross, but also that idea of the day that is before me that we will talk about our lives. Okay, those are some of the things we don't do. But here's some of the things that we do because of this metaphor, the thief in the night. One is that we are aware that we live and and are awake to what Jesus has said, what Paul has said, what the scriptures have revealed about end times. We don't argue, we don't yell at each other, we don't leave the church over, but we discuss, we wrestle. There is much, this is important. We, we enter into and wrestle through the, the tribulation, the second coming, Armageddon, millennial reign, final resurrection, new heavens, new earth. We press in because that has a power to transform how we're living today. Look at verse 8 again. Speaking of metaphors, he uses another metaphor that some of us are familiar with. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. That's a a similar metaphor. What is he using? He's using the equipment of a soldier, right? But it's interesting, he doesn't stay consistent with particular virtues, of breastplate or helmet, right? Many of us know Ephesians 6, but that's in the context of spiritual warfare. Now he's talking about in the context of second coming, and he's saying, as you reflect on these things, as you understand these things, I want you to put on love and faith. I want you to allow God to increase your faith. And your trust that perhaps you don't have all the details, but you know God has got it. And you place your trust in him. And love. Yes, I want you to press in and love well. Love today in this moment. And hope. Don't be hopeless. That's not for Christians. You get a helmet to put on. You say, this is hard right now. I'm struggling right now. There's a deep sadness, but I place my hope in God that someday he will make all things right. Every tear I am shedding, I place my hope in him that he will wipe it away. A second thing we do, the thief in the night, is, is you can take this the wrong way, but let me explain, is you live today as if it's your last. Not in sin and gluttony and 
vacation, but in this way. You take godly risks today. You don't know. You, you go on that mission trip. You, you, you go on that retreat. You, 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 you take some extra time. You, you read through the New Testament in one setting. Whatever that looks like, you take some, some risks. You, you take that evangelistic risk on the street because you don't know if today is the day, right? And when you're caught up, as we talked about last week, you don't want this person to be left behind. So you take the risk. You, you love more. You love radically. You sacrifice radically. Jesus tells a, a parable, again in Matthew 24, it's kind of his, his end times chapter. He says, who then is the faithful and the wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? I'm just gonna cut to the chase with this parable. What he's saying is that you are a steward of what God has given you. All right? Sean and Lisa, the, the idea of taking that in and he has, what he's saying in this parable is, I've given you stuff. I've given you time, I've given you talent, and I've given you treasure. Steward that in such a way that when the master comes back, it's not a day of pain and sorrow where he brings discipline. Right? He says, you've been appointed to salvation, not to suffer wrath. You want to take that time, talent, and treasure and honor God with that so you are ready for that moment. You give in your household, you give them the food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. He's looking for those who are faithful and wise. Again, this parable begs the question, if he were to come tonight, how would you feel about your stewardship, your time, your talent, and treasure? Now, before we leave this passage here, I wanted us to do a little bit of napkin work. All right, so I told you that I want, in this confusing end times, that we want this idea that you would be able, let's say you're talking with a friend, maybe a Christian, maybe not a Christian. Maybe the Spirit of God is working in you. Or in that person in such a way that... Um, that they ask about end times, they say, I don't get it. And so I was going to give you kind of a, a simple of a picture of what I believe will happen this morning, and then I changed my mind. I thought, there's a backside of the napkin. And before I want 
to give people a picture of the end times, I want them to understand what time it is. And as we discovered, we're not quite sure yet what time it is. Right? So really, if you in your, uh, and I have in the bulletin you can fill out if you brought a pen, this top is a picture of in the first century when Jesus came, there was an expectation of God's kingdom and what God was doing. The first century, especially the Jews, the children of God, believed that they were living in this present age, okay? That the Messiah would come, the anointed one, the king of Israel would come. And when the Messiah comes, he would usher in the age to come. That was the first century expectation. Jesus comes and says, yes, not exactly. Not exactly. In fact, what he says is, indeed, the Messiah is going to come and change the time. That's the time change I was talking about. But he's going to do it twice. So he's going to come, one, if we call this present age, or I'll call it broken age. That the Messiah comes and he ushers in what many people would call today the age of the church. A church age. Now, age to come is here. This is the age to come. But we're not there yet. This age has been begun. Through the the ministry of Jesus, this age is seeping into the world. Through the church, the purpose of the church is to usher in this age. However, when the Messiah comes a second time, the second coming, this is the first Then he will bring judgment. Next week on the other side of the napkin, we're going to talk about this place here. But right here, the Messiah comes and ushers in the age to come. Now, on this timeline, where do we live? Yes, we do. The church age, right here. Here And there is a dynamic of the church age that I want us to get. We have a, a, a Hebrews passage, Hebrews 6, 4, and 5. He's talking, the inspired author is talking about those who are struggling in their faith, who have fallen away or attempted to fall away. And he says, but those who have once been enlightened, this is, he's talking about their experience in the Christian church, who have tasted the heavenly gift, probably salvation, 
who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. I'm particularly interested in that last line. What does it mean that people have tasted the powers of the coming age? Yes, thank you, Logan. That right now we still wrestle with brokenness and pain and struggle, but the age to come is there. It is present in our world. It's present in our reality and our life today. So that today, even though we're not here, we're not living here, we get to taste the powers of the coming age. Friends, this is kingdom life. This is, this is life living in between the cross and judgment. This is, yes, we're still walking with some of the pain and struggle of the curse and yet through Christ and now through the church and now what's meant to be through you and me, we get to experience the power of the coming age. When we pray for someone and someone is healed, guess what just happened? We tasted the power of the coming age. When someone gives their life to Christ for the first time, guess what happened? We tasted the power of the coming age. We live in this, some would say, you can put a number of words here. In Isaiah, I want you can write this down if you want, Isaiah 49, 8, when, when the Lord is talking about restoration of Israel, he says, there will be a time of my favor. There will be a time of my salvation. There will be a time of restoration. That's Isaiah 49. Then Paul quotes that in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. And he says, guess what? Now is the time. Right now is the time. You can put favor. You can put salvation. Right? You can put the blessing of God. In theological terms, we call this the already but not yet. But he's saying right now, in this moment, wake up from your slumber because the favor of God is being poured out. You don't have to simply wrestle with the pain of the curse, but his power and restoration and grace and mercy right now, go for it. Don't you want to live life here? Friends, I think some of us are living here. Now, others are living here, but that gets a little bit wacky. But yes, here. He's wanting his disciples, his children, to understand what time it is. What time is it? Favor, blessing, salvation. So there, there were all these answers you could have gone with. I would have accepted any of them. All right. Now, one last thing in our time together. 
want us to invite the uh, prayer, prayer folks forward. Do you know what, why we always talk about prayer at the end of the service? It's the Hebrews passage. That when we're praying, sometimes God chooses not to heal. Sometimes he's got something else going on that we're not aware of. There's a a mystery there. We don't ascribe guilt or shame in that. We just pray. And sometimes when we pray, whether it's it's a relational thing, whether it's a spiritual thing, whether it's a physical thing, and someone receives restoration or renewal or healing, guess what just happened? They tasted the powers of the coming age. That is why we pray. Is the church... The church is meant to be the agent of the kingdom that is bringing the powers of the age to come. And he wants to use simple, faithful people like you and me. He wants us to to trust him He wants us to love one another. I don't want to just love with with words and even just acts of service. All of those are important. But I want to love with the power of God. I want to love the powers of the age to come that would spill over and through. I want to be awake to this reality. I don't want to live my life here. I want to live my life here, mindful of the cross and mindful of the coming age. Let's pray. There's some of you that um, just need a taste of the ages to come. Would you, would you come forward to be prayed for as we worship and as we sing, we close the service. And after the song, I'll give the benediction if you want to continue to be prayed for. But that's, that's what we're doing. Lord, what an incredible gospel it is. You've revealed the mystery that your reality, your kingdom is seeping into our present reality. Thank you for the honor and the privilege it is to be people that live in the already but not yet. Live in the tension of the cross and the age to come. So, Spirit, would you pour in us and through us? Teach us to walk faithfully at this time 
in redemptive history. Amen. Can we stand together and sing this final song? And again, if there's anything, prayer request, please come forward and be prayed for. Amen. Amen. Wouldn't it be awesome if he came back during worship? That would give us a step up, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we should come to church more, I think. Look at your neighbor and say, are you awake? Now live it, live it. Not just on a Sunday morning, every day. Live with that reality of his cross and his coming again. Be alive to God, awake to God. In every conversation, in every relationship, in every day of work, in every circumstance, live awake in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God bless you. We'll see you next week.